Hey listeners, thanks so much for turning in, tuning in to another episode of Hacking History, um, our podcast where we just love to talk about American history. I'm Mike. I'm Todd. And we're just a couple of history teachers that love to talk history. Today we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Maggie, and she's one of my top-notch history students. Um, Maggie, thanks for being here today. Yes, thanks for having me. Well, I tell you, we're sure proud uh, that you are here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm a junior here at Spearman High School, and I play basketball and run cross-country and track and show pigs and commercial steers, and I'm fairly involved in lots of other extracurricular activities. And you are a very busy young lady. Yes, sir. Well, um, today in American history, we will be talking about muckrakers, suffrage, and populism. And, of course, we are in uh, the season of the Progressive Era. And so, Todd, if you don't mind, we'll just start with you again. All right. So we're getting into the Progressive Era. This is uh, our second season. Our first season was the Gilded Age, where we saw a tremendous growth and in industrialization after the Civil War. Uh, the response to that would be the Progressive Era, where there are some reforms occurring that we're trying to improve upon the conditions of the common man that were impacted during the original Gilded Age. So today's topic is populism, suffrage, and muckrakers. So I'm going to start with muckrakers. During this period, a muckraker was a journalist uh, or somebody who wrote literature that exposed the uh, conditions or problems that were going on during the rapid industrialization of the period. Uh, the term like raking muck is where it's pulled from. Originally, uh, President Theodore Roosevelt used it in his speech in April, on April 14, 1906. He borrowed the passage from John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress, referring to uh, the man with the muckrake who would look no way but downwards. Now, the connotations took on maybe a favorable one eventually, but not always initially they weren't always considered to be the greatest because they're stirring up you know muck in this case so to talk about a few of those i'm just going to pick three uh, two women and a man the uh, first one is ida tarbell she was originally from pennsylvania born in 1857 she wrote an expose a serial that ran in mcclure's called the history of the standard oil company and in this expose she talked about the unfair practices of a rising monopoly and you know took on a very big heavy hitter when we talk about the standard oil company that ultimately owned 90 percent of the oil production in this country another one that you can't not talk about when you talk about muckrakers would be upton sinclair he wrote a uh, book it's actually part of a seven-week investigation called The Jungle. In this, he was trying to do an expose on the meatpacking industry, the conditions that were in that. A lot of the writing dealt with what the workers were going through. You saw people without fingernails, uh, people whose thumbs were rubbed down to nubs from the work that they had to do. But what really caught the attention of the public was the conditions of the food that was coming out of there. 
severe rat infestations, uh, no hygiene or cleanliness, nothing for them to wash their hands, uh, trying to kill the rats with poison, ultimately food coming out of there, meaning sausage, ground beef, could have anything from rat, rat feces, and rat poison all within the food supply. Uh, really turned a lot of stomachs in that period. Todd, have you ever uh, read The Jungle? I've read excerpts of it, uh, but I've, from my own personal taste, I've decided to try to avoid it. I don't know that I want to know the full story, but enough of the experts to know that uh, it would have uh, made me a vegetarian pretty quickly during that time. Mm-hmm. Well, I did read it, and it's been uh, quite some time since I've, I did read it, but um, th it was about a family that came over from, uh, I believe it was Lithuania, and uh, they they really really struggled and it's a great story a great depiction of of what some of these hardships were um, that a lot of these immigrants endured when they came over and um, it, it's I just I would highly encourage anybody that has an interest in this time period in American history in the progressive era to uh, to read that book so um, yeah, there there was an, a a lot of sausage and canned meat that was made uh, during this time period, wasn't there? Yes, yes, and and in his effort there, he wrote you know what he wrote would later go on to cause the passage of uh, several food inspection laws, which we'll talk about in a later podcast. But one of the comments that came out of it was it really wasn't the intent that he he had anticipated. He was, uh, in his own words, was aiming at the public's heart, but, and by accident ended up hitting him in the stomach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the last one I'm going to talk about is uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett. Uh, she was born in Mississippi. Uh, she is an African-American journalist who led an anti-lynching crusade in the United States in the 1890s. She is active in promoting justice for African-Americans. Uh, this lady was actually born into slavery. so. Quite a remarkable progression uh, of a life from being born into slavery to being, a, you know, an advocate uh, for rights uh, as she was. So a very phenomenal life for her. And you know, as we talk about women and women's rights, uh, Ida Tarbell as well. You know, women starting to stick their heads out and, and say these things matter and, and are forcing the public to listen to. Yeah, it's unbelievable how many people were killed during that time period by lynching. The KKK was um, in full, going full blast, especially throughout the South, but not only in the South. And uh, it was um, um, an effort to, to try to keep these African Americans from being involved in the political process and in voting. Um, so, um, yeah, Really, really an amazing woman there for sure. And we're still off the heels of a civil war, so you know, these feelings don't go away quickly, or just because the war is over. So it takes time, and it takes people like her to uh, move us the direction we need to go. Yeah. Speaking of women, Maggie, what do you know about some of these women during this time? Because I'm going to toss this over to you, um, women's suffrage. Yes. So. Women's suffrage really took place in the early 19th century, but I believe many of the starts began right after the Civil War. So 
Some of the most influential members of the suffrage movement were Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Alice Paul, and Emmeline Pankhurst, just to name a few. And although the law was passed in 1919, it really got its starts, I would say, right after the Civil War, and especially in the Progressive Era. So I think it's important to kind of take a look back at some of the numbers of women employment rates prior to this time. So in 1818, 2.6 women were in the workforce. By 1819, there were 4 million. By 1900, 5.1 million. And by 1910, 7.8 women had entered the workforce. And this drastic change, I think, just represents how women were stepping out of their traditional role um, as homemakers and stay-at-home moms to get their own jobs to help provide for themselves and their families. And just this movement of not only breaking away from the tradition of staying home with your family, but going out and creating something for yourself, they really started to realize that only half the population of our country was able to vote and able to have a say in government and how things were run. And that is when a lot of these um, things started to, to take place. So the 15th Amendment, which happened in 1869, is when African Americans were given the right to vote. And this was a huge step in our nation, but a lot of these leaders, such as Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, were angry that they also didn't get the right to vote. So that was one thing that really spurred on the movement and created a lot of controversy that um, women still cannot vote during this time period. So these two ladies, Anthony and Stanton, created their own suffrage group called the National Women's Suffrage Association, which focused on not only um, suffrage and women getting the right to vote, but many other feminist ideas. So then there is a separate association called American Women's Suffrage Association, which focused solely on women's right to vote and really nothing else. And this was kind of spurred by the 15th Amendment, which allowed African Americans to vote. Like I said, it created a lot of controversy within the women's rights movement and forced them to split into two different associations. But they both had the same ideals, wanting equal rights for women to be able to vote, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting, I thought, that Washington was the very first state that granted women suffrage, and that was in 19, or 1912, I believe. And by 1913, nine states had passed um, the law saying that women could vote in their states, and that included Washington, California, Arizona, Kansas, and Oregon. But the law, or the amendment in the Constitution that was added for the entire country that allowed women's suffrage was the 19th Amendment. And an easy way to remember that is it was in the year 1919, 100 years ago from today, that it passed in Congress, and it was finally ratified in 1920. Man, Maggie, very good. That, that is some great information. Um, you know, I, I think about women's suffrage, and I know there for a long period of time, many women felt that that was their husband's responsibility. Yes. That is just something that was a part of the culture at that time. But I think that looking back on the Gilded Age and then the early, so the late 1800s, early 1900s, when the country is, is really uh, becoming industrialized and, and we covered a lot of these hardships that, 
that many, many Americans were suffering during the Gilded Age and during that time period, um, I, I think that was a direct result maybe of why so many women um, had a different change of heart about this political process. I think that they were seeing their families hurting, yes, especially their kids, you know, were, were not getting fed and, and clothed and, and they weren't uh, being taken care of. And it wasn't because a lot of these families weren't doing every possible thing that they could to provide for their family. It was just the fact, I think, that that um, the, the the government and, and the way um, um, uh, fairness and so forth was was needed to be established. And of course, um, I think that's one of the great things about our country today is that, and, I, and I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about this with populism, is um, that that when we see that there is a strong need for change, then there's going to be a lot of Americans um, that are going to rise to this challenge and and try to to make some changes and and you know that's to me what the progressive era is is all about um, making necessary changes in America. I think there's probably a little bit to the uh, economic power that comes over time too because with industrialization we're seeing women work more. Uh, and I think it's probably no coincidence that the 19th Amendment comes on the heels of World War One, where mm -hmm. many men went abroad, mm -hmm. and uh, there were roles that had to be filled, you know, domestically, as far as who was going to work. So we see a growth of women in the workplace, not only during industrialization, but uh, during World War One, and that economic power, I think, also helped push the suffrage movement. Sure. So, got anything else, Maggie? Well, I was, as I was doing some research on suffrage, I came across an article about Susan B. Anthony, and I just thought she was a remarkable woman. She fought her whole life, um, not only for women's rights, but also, like at the age of 17, she collected anti-slavery petitions, and she was an agent in the American Anti-Slavery Society. She just dedicated her whole life to fighting for other people and equality of everyone and she died in 1906 and didn't even get to see her dreams really come to life and be established in this country but I just think she's a really true inspiration of someone who fights for what they believe for no matter what mm-hmm you bet absolutely so um, you know speaking of, of fighting for what you believe in and and, um, and that's kind of the American way to a lot of people and uh, my topic is populism um, or the populist party uh, in the United States in the 1890s and early 1900s um, and I, you could say that populism is rooted in progressivism um, it's kind of the elevator that took a lot of the needs that we've been talking about uh, in the progressive era to, to rise from the bottom to get national attention when Todd was talking about um, the jungle and Upton Sinclair's description of all the hardships that were going on in the meatpacking industry there for quite some time um, it was it was the voice of the muckrakers it was the voice of of the common ordinary American I guess for a lack of a better word I, I don't 
I don't like to put those two words together because I think all Americans are kind of amazing in, in their own right and unique. But um, uh, anyway, um, so, so populism um, was a movement um, during this time period and it was it was a combination of two large groups one of them was the Knights of Labor and of course it was a labor union uh, with in, in industrial types of, of, of jobs and then the Grange which would be um, a, a grouping of farmers uh, that would come together to have their voice heard and some of the the topics that they would want to talk about and get some things changed um, the big one had to do with the railroads. The railroads were overcharging. The railroads were a, a huge thorn in their side as far as, uh, especially the farmers. Um, the, the markets were down for their um, crops during this time period. And they were really struggling to make a profit. And then you have the high rates uh, from the railroads and they just just were really struggling they couldn't no matter how hard they worked they couldn't get out of of debt and um you know it kind of takes your hope and and dreams away when that sort of thing happens so they called for the government to take ownership of the railroads so they could um establish some some rates and get a handle on these really high prices another thing that they wanted um, the government to take hold of was the silver standard. Uh, so a lot of times these farmers would go to the bank and they would try to borrow money for land or equipment, seed and so forth, and um, the bank wouldn't loan them the money most of the time because the money just wasn't there. And of course this was back in the gold standard and so the populist party, they wanted the government to establish a, a silver standard to base um, the printing of money on. And, um, and then later, a lot of them would want fiat money, um, which we'll talk about at a later time. They were supporters of the 16th Amendment, which uh, we, I believe we said in last podcast um, was the income tax amendment. And it would be based on how much money you made. So, graduated income tax. They also supported the 17th Amendment, which was the direct election of senators um, by the people of the states rather than having the state legislators pick those two. And they supported stronger immigration laws. So, those were some of the major topics uh, or major concerns that they had in that they were very vocal about them. Now, what did they do? They got together and they elected a third-party candidate by the name of James B. Weaver to run for president. And he actually got about 8.5% of the popular vote. Four states um, would support him. And he, um, like many third-party candidates, would not be successful in the fact that they were elected into the office. But they did show the other political parties, the Republican Party and the Democrat Party, that there was a strong desire to have some of these things that they were talking about um, changed and in, 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 uh, included into the federal government. And so they were very successful when you look at it from that way. 
uh, that perspective. Of all the progressive presidents, um, Teddy Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and Woodrow Wilson during this time period, it was Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican president, who listened to the populist party, I think, the most and adopted a lot of these um, changes into, uh, into his um, time as president. So, um, again, I guess it depends on how you look at whether or not they were successful or not. Um, the, the changes that they wanted, um, some of them were established. Obviously, the United States government does not own the railroad industry. Um, they did tinker with the silver standard a little bit. Uh, didn't didn't come out to be super successful, and so eventually they would um, go with the fiat uh, money and, and do completely away with the gold and silver standard. Um, obviously, the president and Congress supported the 16th and 17th Amendment, and they did make some modification with immigration laws, but not as severe as what the Populist Party was pushing for. So, um, having said all of that, it helped to create what we were sort of talking about a little bit earlier, and that was the development of a middle class of Americans. And, um, I, you know, there's a lot of historians that believe that these changes wouldn't have happened had it not been for the populist or the People's Party of the United States. So um, they were the voice, and, and they pushed really hard for a lot of these uh, changes. Kind of a fun fact along these lines, I, I spoke to, um, a second ago about the Farmers Alliance. Well, the first Farmers Alliance formed in Lampasas, Texas in 1877. Now, Lampasas is about 75 miles northeast of Austin, Texas, so it's down in the Hill Country region. And that is exactly where I started teaching. So way back, many, many years ago. And, you know, something that's kind of ironic about this, I started thinking about the countryside around Lampasas, and there's not a lot of farmland around that area. Maybe a little bit in the valleys uh, between the hills, but that old rocky soil is, is not really that fertile. And they call it hill country for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. They sure do. It's beautiful. Yes, very beautiful area. Very pretty. So, um, anyway, our time is coming to a close. Um, Y'all have anything else you want to share? I have kind of a fun fact. Awesome. So, there was, as well as, like, not only in America, where women fighting for the right to vote, but also in Great Britain. And, in fact, they got suffrage passed a year before we did. And there was a suffragette there whose name was Emmeline Pankhurst. And she actually trained 30 women as her to be her bodyguards, and they learned the art of shuzitsu. You might have to cut that out. How do you say that karate? It's not jujitsu. I think you're pretty you're you're pretty Close clean enough. there. Close yeah. enough, yeah. No kind of like karate, but not quite like karate. Anyway, and so when she would go and give um, speeches places, it was illegal, and the police tried to arrest her many times. And she would, she kept escaping. She'd have like someone dressed up as her and walk out one door, and the police would go and try to arrest her, and she'd sneak out the back, all these different ways. But each time it got a little bit closer, a little bit closer, 
so she had these 30 women that would protect her and one time they they got her and they had to like there's like, like 100 police were there and these 30 women protected her for the most part but they ended up getting her and arresting her and but that turned out to be exactly what she wanted was to be arrested and then brought even more awareness to the issue and people felt bad for her and so parliament ended up having to pass the suffrage act and I thought that was very interesting how they went about it and she actually had 30 women bodyguard as to keep her protected dang <laughs> and you don't hear many women learning karate back in the 1800s like that no, no. and I tell you Al Capone didn't have anything on her as far as bodyguards did <laughs> yeah he? He, nope right wow. Well, that is very interesting. Thanks for sharing that with us, Maggie. Um, Todd, how about you? Uh, I think we're good. Awesome. Well, we sure do appreciate everybody for tuning in to another podcast of Hacking History. And Maggie, thank you again for being on our podcast today. And we hope um, hope everybody's picked up a little bit of knowledge from what we had to share. So we'll see you next time. <laughs>